1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fears of Russian escalation as Ukraine's counteroffensive sees success – Warnings of possible Russian cyber attacks gain context from attribution of the Viaset incident. CISA continues to recommend best practices. North Korean APTs exploit Chrome vulnerabilities. Mustang Panda is back. David DeFore from Webroot on ransomware gangs and cartels. Our guest is Liliana Monhe of Sabio Coding Bootcamp on creating opportunities for those looking to pursue a career in tech. And friends, 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 your wild ways will break your dear mother's heart. From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 25th, 2022. The U.S. Justice Department has unsealed two indictments of four Russian nationals, all employed by the Russian government, in connection with cyberattacks against energy sector targets. The first indictment involves the ultimately unsuccessful 2017 Triton-Trisis attack against safety systems in a petrochemical plant. The second involves the Dragonfly campaigns between 2012 and 2017. These sought to compromise and maintain persistence within industrial control systems used in the energy sector. The unsealed indictments are being widely taken as showing the sort of active threat Russian operators pose to critical infrastructure. CISA director Jen Easterly clapped at the Justice Department over Twitter. She said, Good to see the Justice Department indictments on Russian state-sponsored cyber actors – Along with our FBI and DOA teammates, we're releasing a cybersecurity advisory with information and actions to defend against related threats to the energy sector. An unnamed Justice Department official told The Guardian, these charges show the dark art of the possible when it comes to critical infrastructure. The Washington Post reported this morning that U.S. intelligence analysts have now attributed the attack against Viasat services to Russia's GRU, the country's military intelligence service. The U.S. government has yet to make a public announcement of the determination. Ukraine has for some time claimed that Russia was behind the cyber attack, which Ukraine's military intelligence services viewed as Russian battle space preparation. The Post writes Asked this week whether Ukraine knew who was behind the attack, Viktor Zora. Deputy Head of the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, Ukraine's main cybersecurity agency, said, We don't need to attribute it since we have obvious evidence that it was organized by Russian hackers to disrupt the connection between customers that use this satellite system. He added, Of course, they were targeting the potential of the Ukrainian military forces first as this happened just before the invasion. California-based Viasat which hasn't offered any attribution of the incident, told Air Force magazine how it was accomplished. The ground management network that manages the KASAT network and manages other UTELSAT networks, that network was penetrated. And from there, the hackers were able to launch an attack against the terminals using the normal function of the management plane of the network. The company said the damage was limited. Only users who inherited their service from UTELSAT were affected. Viasat said, even on that network, none of our mobility and none of our government customers were affected. The controls we have around those users kept them safe. Russia's ability and, up to a point, will to conduct cyber attacks against its adversaries in the hybrid war against Ukraine is not in doubt. But at this stage of the conflict, Ukraine itself remains largely online, and the wiper and distributed denial-of-service attacks it has sustained since the run-up to Russia's invasion haven't seriously impeded access to the Internet. The records coverage suggests that this is largely due to the resilience of Ukrainian infrastructure and the hard work of the country's telecommunications sector. But Russia does seem to have pulled its punches. An essay in We Live Security while cautioning that a major cyber attack certainly can't be ruled out, considers the possibility that Russia's apparent restraint may have been induced by effective deterrence. That would be both deterrence by denial and deterrence by promised retaliation. Yesterday, CISA and the FBI released an alert titled Tactics, Techniques and Procedures of Indicted State-Sponsored Russian Cyber Actors Targeting the Energy Sector. It provided background on the Russian cyberattacks addressed in the two indictments the U.S. Department of Justice unsealed Thursday. The advice the alert offers on hardening an organization against similar attacks is comparable to the advice the agencies have been circulating since CISA told everyone to go to Shields Up, familiar but nonetheless sound sets of best practices for both enterprise and industrial control systems. Russia's foreign ministry, whose Twitter feed has been marked by defiance, self-pity, and implausible insistence, yesterday shared its take on Russian progress in Ukraine. Exactly one month since the start of the special military operation in Ukraine, it is going according to plan, and all the stated goals will be achieved. Life is returning to normal in the territories already liberated from nationalists. No one else sees it quite this way. North Korean threat actors have been exploiting two remote code execution vulnerabilities in Chrome, Google reports. These groups' activity has been publicly tracked as Operation Dream Job and Operation Apple Juice. The former has been largely interested in journalists. The latter has mostly busied itself with operations against cryptocurrency users and the financial services sector more generally. Chinese intelligence services, who have increased their collection activity as the crisis of Russia's war against Ukraine intensifies, have combined a new remote-access Trojan with complex evasive techniques intended to impede detection. The group researchers are observing is the one generally known as Mustang Panda. And finally, the mystery of who lapsus is and what it's up to may have been solved, The BBC reports that City of London police have arrested at least seven teenagers in connection with the gang's activities. They told the BBC, Seven people between the ages of 16 and 21 have been arrested in connection with an investigation into a hacking group. They have all been released under investigation. Our inquiries remain ongoing. So, Lapsus seems to have been a crew of script kiddies. For all that, their activities were damaging and disruptive. Lapsus was in it for the lulls, the cash, and the cachet. As miners, none of the names of those arrested have been released. The apparent leader, who goes by the hacker name White and Breachbase, is said to be a 16-year-old boy in Oxford. The BBC talked with the kid's father, who said, "...I had never heard about any of this until recently. He's never talked about any hacking, but he is very good on computers and spends a lot of time on the computer." I always thought he was playing games. The father added, we're going to try to stop him from going on computers. Good luck with that, dad. If you figure out how to keep him offline, let us know, we could all use that parenting tip. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging The cybersecurity industry needs more qualified workers, and it needs them now. Demand is high, and that's leading some candidates to forgo a four-year degree and instead opt for a coding boot camp, hands-on vocational-style training designed to get students up to speed and ready for employment ASAP. Liliana Monhe is co-founder and CEO of Sabio Coding Bootcamp.
0: When we first began, we thought maybe we would work with uh, high school students that decided not to go to college. However, because this is vocational training and the expectation is that when you're done, you will go get a job, we have actually found that people who are about 22 to 29 are the most likely to want to enroll in the program. We, of Mm. course, will uh, happily enroll anyone. We actually had a gentleman who had retired from the State Department at age 65. He came to the program, and he's now a software engineer in Irvine. However, most people who are in their early 20s are most drawn to the program.
1: So someone who completes uh, the types of programs that you all offer here, what are their expectations in terms of entering the job market? What, what, to what degree are they prepared for the jobs that are out there?
0: Yeah, so we have found that most of the people who graduate from our program are ready to join a team because they will, you know, obviously have a certain amount of experience. And so they're going to need assistance and support inside of an organization. So typically, if it's a smaller business, maybe there's already a senior engineer architect on the team and they need someone to support them with maybe some front end work or some SQL work. If you have larger organizations like Microsoft, they themselves have an onboarding process that takes four months for people who are graduating from coding boot camps, And so they themselves will bring you in. They will give you uh, additional curriculum for four weeks just so that they can once again uh, give you additional context for how they do things at Microsoft. And then they will put you with a team for an additional three months. And then depending on how you perform, Microsoft can hire you as a full-time software engineer. So it really depends on the type of organization that our grads are interested in joining. There are different types of opportunities. It's rare that one of our grads will go and be like the first technical team member in an organization's org chart. That typically is not what we see uh, just because our our fellows are going to have less than six months of experience.
1: So in terms of you know, comparing this to someone who might have their, their sights set on, let's say, a four-year degree, how does this compare to that?
0: Yeah, so as I started in the beginning, you know, we like to make sure that people understand that this is vocational training. It's something that is going to give you sufficient skills so that you can join a team and add value and so there has to be some infrastructure already there. My understanding of computer science grads is that, you know, they're going to come out with a lot more theoretical understanding of how those systems were designed and why they were designed a certain way. So, you know, software development takes a lot of its words and, you know, the way they structure it from the world of construction. And so a lot of us are familiar with, with the concept of what an architect will do, right? They 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 design the blueprints, but they're not the ones out there swinging the hammer and actually building your house. And so in software engineering, it's very similar. You may have someone who has a lot more experience, or someone who's secured a computer science degree, who may architect a system, who may design a new system altogether from the ground up. Coding boot camps are designed to give you vocational skills that will get you into the job market rather quickly. So it doesn't have to be binary in terms of an engineering team can have different types of professionals. Just like when you go to a hospital, you know, you meet with a doctor and they've had a certain type of education, but then you also meet with nurses, with registered nurses and different types of professionals. So the same thing works in the tech ecosystem.
1: I would imagine too, this provides a lot of folks with an opportunity to, to get a foothold in the industry without loading themselves up with a lot of debt.
0: Yes. So the time, uh, the time opportunity, the opportunity cost is much lower when you attend a coding bootcamp. The price to participate in the Sabia coding bootcamp is $15,000. And that's pretty standard across the United States in that range of 15,000. And you're correct. I mean, my understanding is that if you want to do a computer science undergraduate degree, it's going to be somewhere between a hundred to 200,000, depending on where you're going to go. So there are very significant differences in opportunity cost. You know, our program can be done in four months. A computer science degree can take you four years, and it's really just about you know someone's personal preference, where they are in their life. That you know, you have to assess which solution is best for me.
1: That's Liliana Monhe from Sabio Coding Bootcamp. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear the full interview. Head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He is the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at OpenText. David, always great to have you back on the show. Uh, As we are well on our way into 2022 here, it seems as though ransomware continues unabated. And, And I have to say, one of the things that strikes me is the ongoing professionalization of the organizations who are up to this. I know this is something you've had your eye on as well.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, you and I have touched on this topic many times, David, where uh, these gangs have become more and more professional. You know, several years back, you and I were seeing proper quality control in the actual ransomware itself because some uh, strains of ransomware weren't decrypting properly. And, and those strains would die off because no one would pay the ransom. Um, and, and, and the code itself just kept getting better and better. And now, uh, as with a lot of times we see in the threat landscape, they've really institutionalized this, have well-defined processes, and, and are doing a really good job at executing.
1: It's interesting to me. In addition to that, that we see different groups sort of specializing in, in different things. That you can, you know, if, if I'm someone looking to to put together a, a ransomware um, offering, dare I say? Yeah, I can get a little from column A, a little from column B, depending on who I want to hit and, you know, how much I want to charge and and how much help I think
2: I need. That's exactly right. And, and you know, we've seen time and again where a, a, a new solid strain of ransomware will come out. The, the creator of that ransomware will go out and look for folks um, to deploy that on devices for them. Um, Then they'll see who's the most successful at that deployment, and then they will shut the whole thing down, tighten up the code base, modify it a little bit, go with the the top tier folks at at getting that stuff distributed, and then they will hit the, the, uh, the world hard and fast. Um, and, and we see that time and again, and I hate to say it's kind of like if you imagine in the movies, the, the mobster movies where they are all sitting around a table talking about, I'm going to take the south side and you're going to take the north side. I mean, literally, they're not sitting around a table because it's COVID and, and obviously they're staying at home and, and you know, quarantining properly. But um, no, seriously, they're, they're sitting around and really communicating how they're going to divide this up. Who's the best at what? component of this, and then they execute with the best of the best. We've
1: seen a little bit of disruption here. Uh, Do you think we're going to see more of that this
2: year? So we have seen pretty solid um, disruption. We will continue to see that. But like we all know it's a moving target and once we disrupt somewhere knock some things offline some folks will come up with something and you know what's next now does that mean we should not be uh executing on this and and should should we not be um uh, trying to protect we obviously should i mean we 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 used to see types of of threats 15 20 years ago that we don't see anymore um and so we'll get past this but for now we we've just got to kind of whack-a-mole and and get it solved as we can until we come with a a more holistic solution on how to resolve it
1: is your sense that um you know the the low-hanging fruit for for the ransomware operators isn't so low anymore that that in general there's better awareness around that uh you know, the we talk about digital hygiene. That that uh, the general level of that has improved uh, in a measurable sort of way.
2: I mean, in a jaded, I'm I'm gonna say no. I mean, these folks every year are making more and more and more money. And so, uh, to, to 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 your specific point, they started out um, attacking individuals, consumers, small businesses, and and then, uh, you know, just to see how things worked, and now. That, we've kind of protected our, that, in, that that level, but what they've done is, is up-level it and take uh, that exploit path where they find exploits with larger organizations and they've gotten just more sophisticated. So I, I would say we get better at each level as they attack that level, we're not getting in front of it.
1: All right, well, David DeFore, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Semantec's Dick O'Brien. We're discussing the Shuckworm cyber espionage campaign against Ukraine. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland, out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Pelsman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.